I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people of the Yonora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I guess, you know, that's one of the things that we do in our business as well, is we make sure we are regularly trying different mines, different regions. Uh, we're always doing tastings and, and, you know, we try to vary it as much as possible because then it becomes our knowledge base as well. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Mark Balderston is the Managing Director of Riedel Australia and New Zealand. He is also one of the most passionate and professional individuals that I've ever come across in my time. He's fiercely dedicated to his craft and a huge supporter of all people, places and spaces serving great drinks. If you can pour it, you can be sure that Mark has a glass for it. Hi Mark, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Hi Shante. That was a wonderful intro. Thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. We have known each other for some time now and I thoroughly look forward to any chance I get to have a chat or talk to you about what you've been up to. So thank you for making time for me today. Likewise. Thanks. No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Shanta. Tell me a little bit about where the story of wine or drinks kind of begins for you. (laughs) So I was not a great student and uh, I decided to leave school quite early in my life. And uh, I actually originally wanted to go and and become a chef, but uh, my mum said that was a disastrous, terrible idea. Don't do that. Don't become a chef. You're you're too volatile. I don't want you in a kitchen with knives. Forget it. And uh, and ended up in a roundabout way uh, when I was actually 17, I started working at the Lord Nelson Brewery Hotel uh, and I was... Um, obviously being 17, I wasn't allowed in the public bar area, of course, uh, once they were open, but I was allowed downstairs in, in, in throwing kegs around and, and restocking the, the bars when, when no one was around out of hours. And uh, Blair Hayden, the proprietor down there, actually got me interested in wine. He was the one that used to, uh, once I turned 18, of course, uh, he used to offer me regularly the opportunity to taste wine. Um, part one of the owners of that property is Robert Hillsmith uh, from Yolumba. And, uh, and so, of course, a lot of the winemakers used to turn up there on a regular basis and open up bottles of wine. And I guess I just I got, I got allured with, with what wine was and is. And back then, this is a, quite a long time ago, uh, they were opening up a lot of very old wines. And I had the pleasure of seeing these wines uh, as they'd been out at tastings during the daytime and then they'd come back and have beers in the afternoon and literally put the, the, the wines out the back uh, for you to try. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, yeah, it just I, 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 <coughs> how can you not be enchanted with trying all these really old wines, which most people will never get to see in their life? And that was how I got interested in wine. <coughs> ah, the Lord Nelson. I mean, that's such an institution, Australia's oldest continually licensed hotel. And I was wondering if it was Blair because, you know, he's been or has been the proprietor for a long time there and such a passionate man about wine and really changed the, that space into, oh gosh, what it is today. What were your first kind of impressions about the people involved in wine and and, and, and the winemakers? Did you think, gosh, they're, they're, they're kind of a bit batty or did you think that they were just very passionate people? What was your, what was your first, you know, thoughts about them? I th- always thought it was an industry that was full of a lot of very passionate people. There's no doubt about that. And I do remember a lot of people when I started thinking about going, wanting to go into the industry because I, th- I thought, you know, what a great, what a great opportunity working in, in with winemakers and out selling bottles of wine 
and and as I said, look, the, the sort of the, the trend back then for an old school rep was I'm sure they'd do their, their calls in the morning up to lunchtime and in the afternoon that was it. They were they were off. And I thought, what a great idea, you know. What I wanna I wanna do this too. I wanna go and drink wine in the afternoon and have fun. Um, uh, with all these with all these crazy people. Uh, of course the industry is very different now and this is not, not what you do, but uh, yeah, I, I think you know it was always enticing uh, in that from that perspective to um, thinking about the sort of people that were involved in the industry. And uh, I always remember as well, you know, people always said, "Look, you know, if you want to go into the wine industry, you're never going to make money out of this. This is this is not this is you know you do this for love, you do this for passion. You don't make money out of wine." I mean, I think these days a lot of people have made very good money out of wine, and it is a good industry. But there's no doubt about it. Back then, it was it was much more a labour of love, and therefore it attracted those sort of people uh, by nature. Yeah, I, I love that that hospitality can be a gateway for perhaps people that maybe just like you said didn't perhaps go down the traditional route. It surprises me that you didn't love school because I think of you as quite a studious, professional person. But a, a very interesting to know that that's the kind of start you had. <laughs> I I think I was a I was a square peg in a round hole, and school didn't really. School didn't know how to deal with me, and I didn't know how to deal with school. And and ultimately, I got spat out the spat out the side. Uh, and it was and I I always wanted to work. I've I've worked from when I was nine, I guess from when I was nine years of age onwards. Uh, my first job was out picking up golf balls on a driving range with a with a with a hat on and and a coat. Uh, and I used to get paid I think three dollars fifty or two dollars fifty and a, and a can of drink at the end of it. Uh, you know, so I, I've always wanted to work. Like I've always had that desire. And that's been that's always burned a lot stronger in me than anything else. Uh, and that you know through various different jobs in my my early teens, and then once I had that opportunity, and I thought, no, nah, I want to go out and work. That's it. Get me out of here. I'm, I'm, school's not for me. So, and of course, you know, you do a lot of your your learning later in life anyway. Uh, my context. So, yeah. Yeah, very true. Well, I'm glad that you weren't hit by any of those golf balls, and we still have you with us today. <laughs> Tell me about. Um, where did Riedel come into it? So I, when I was, after I left the Lord Nelson, I had wanted to get into the wine industry. And back then I was Sydney based. Uh, there was not a lot of opportunity in the wine industry, interestingly. It was going through quite a, a stagnant phase. Um, not a lot of opportunities popping up with distributors to, to work as a, as a sales rep or in, in anywhere really. Uh, and an opportunity came about with Riedel based in Melbourne and uh, I met the, who was the distributor back then. I think what had happened is there a container of product had been imported into the country uh, from Riedel and it sat in a warehouse and didn't move. Uh, and there was, a, there was a, a semi-distribution structure that had been put into place but nothing was really organised. And uh, Wolfgang Engel, who is the... Um, still in the company, he was sent here by George Riedel to, to go and sort out what, find out what's happening with the container and, and go and have a look at it and, uh, and find out what's going on. And he said to the distributor, well, you either employ someone to make it work or, uh, or we'll take the distribution off you and we'll, we'll, we'll make our own plans here. And, uh, and I just happened to fall into the job at that time. It wasn't something that was intended. Uh, and so I started working for the distributor in Victoria and, and, uh, you know, and it was interesting. I always remember going out and having a look and, and in the marketplace and trying to find this product before it even started, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. I'm like, right, okay. So, 
uh, we really started with a blank canvas, and this is back in '95, uh, where right at the time we only had uh, essentially what we classify now as all of our retail lines, uh, which we were selling to restaurants. So there was a there was a small number of accounts which had had I guess supported the the product and the brand, but based on the price points and what they were purchasing, it was a big stretch to 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 get them to come across. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I sort of fell into the role back then. Um, as I say, that was back in 1995 uh, and then have continued, you know, sort of evolving since then. But, uh, yeah, it was, it's, been, it's been a long period of time that uh, I guess we've seen change. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the industry, you know, the glass industry, for that matter, dates back, you know, to the 1400s or before that. But tell me, what was your first impressions of Riedel when you kind of first went into it? What was the thing that struck you? You thought, this is a company that I'm interested in working for. Um, for me, it was about the product itself is was something that you can't you know, even today, when we think about how the brand, like what the product does and what it, what it stands for in relation to how it benefits a consumer, it was a product which was market leading and it was paving its own road. And, uh, you know, glassware at the time was very different. Glassware was, there, there was the little XL5, that was everywhere. And most sort of wine bars were using that as a, as a, as a, as a drinking glass. Um, or alternatively, they were using some form, you know, better restaurants were using some sort of form of decorated glass. Uh, and when you saw then the product and how it worked, it was very easy to fall in love with it. It was a product and a, 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 that it just performs every time and it always enhanced the wine, the beverage, the moment, the experience, every little part of it. And, you know, back then we were only dealing with three lines. We had uh, a handmade line, which was sommeliers, which we still have. We have Venom and we have Overture. These were the, and, and Overture was the was what George Riedel produced just to sell to restaurants because they wanted the Riedel brand, but they didn't want to spend the money on, on Venom. And I mean, and as I said, these were all retail products. But so we were, you know, a lot of our tastings and a lot of our um, workshops or experiments and training sessions that we did with clients were with our sommeliers series, our handmade line that come out of our main factory in Kufstein. It's, you know, when you use a handmade glass, there's just something unique and special about it. It's a very, very beautiful piece. It's been, you know, produced by an artisan. Uh, every piece is unique and is different, and that's the joy and the beauty of what a handmade product is. Hard not to fall in love with it, I guess. That was where I got to with it. Um, and again, you know, every time you use it, it just reinforced with me how amazing the product is and how amazing it is for the consumer that they always get an amazing glass of wine when they drink from a Riedel glass. And that for me was what, what really struck me. Uh, and it was the one thing that, you know, you constantly were able to show people how to enjoy something to a higher level. Uh, and it was a very unique thing. You know, there was not, not many other products in our industry, um, wine related, other than different wine brands that, that sort of that sparked this interest and, and this, this joy in a consumer. Um, and I guess that was really what ultimately took me. I, I think it's interesting because Riedel does everything 
to the utmost level of perfection, whether it's marketing, packaging, delivery, everything is thought very, you know, thought considered and and wonderfully executed. But I think what's amazing is the product. Like you said, the product itself. If I speak to Nelly, any sommelier or, or, or wine lover or bartender, they always have a moment where they've come across Riddell glassware and they've um, had the experience of tasting it and gone, holy crap, I cannot believe the change in that tequila or that glass of wine just by doing the process and the experience of having that, you know, that smell and that sniff and then and enjoying the product. And what I think is amazing is that it's really great to see somebody have that light bulb moment and go, holy crap, that's amazing. And it's not through necessarily that you guys telling us about it. It's their own personal experience. Absolutely. Yeah, spot on. Look, and this is, this is you know, a large part of what we do is talking to consumers and, and that light bulb moment that you just remember, you know, you recalled is, is something that we see in consumers. Even today, I mean, look, there's no doubt consumers, whether they've heard about Riedel, a lot of our customers have our brand, uh, wonderful supporters, but they've never really sat, they've never ever sat with us at a tasting and, and seen the difference that a glass can make. And that side of the experience, when, when they actually do, I had a customer just recently who, who you know, decked, he's, he's made a function center in his house. Um, he owns quite a large firm and he's bought a lot of glasses off us. So I think, all, you know, a couple of thousand pieces for his, uh, for his function center. And I asked him to come along to a tasting just recently. So he'd, he'd already committed to the brand. He, he was, he was a you know, very valued customer, very loyal. He came to a tasting and said, I had no idea that it had made that much difference. And, and it's one of those things, unless you go through that experience, unless you do a comparison, uh, then it's just a vessel which holds a liquid. You know, and there's lots of those out there in the market, plenty of them. The market's full of them. Once you then make the glass work, that's what matters. And I guess, you know, that's, that's largely what we do and, and we, you know, we try to do is really educate people from that perspective. Yeah. And, and that, that, that tasting that you talked about, I was lucky enough to be invited to one by you where George was there at the time. And, and I will never forget the entire process. It, it was like everyone was hanging on every word that he spoke. There was death silence when he spoke. Um, but I remember it was, it was these incredible moments where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that. It's almost like there's some kind of magic happening in the room. And then, you know, the glassware was packaged up to take home. I was like a kid in a candy store. I was just absolutely just thrilled. And I, 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 say, I even said to my parents, I was like, you need to go and do one of these experiences because I said, everyone gets so much out of them. Look, absolutely. And George, in this sense, as we, I mean, George is retired these days, but uh, he still, thankfully, he still does tastings from time to time. Uh, and George is the master of it. You know, his tastings have become very complex uh, and very late because he's learnt it over a long period of time. I think even in the end, some of his tastings were blowing out to well over two hours. Um, but, you know, they're, they're full of content and full of information, all of which is interesting. I think to the average consumer, maybe, you know, probably a, could be an oversaturation, but there's mm. to the trade, amazing information that, and content that comes out, of, comes out of a tasting with George. So, yeah, fun experience. Yeah. Uh, he certainly knows how to capture a room. And, and in saying that, so does Maximilian. So, R Riedel is a family-owned company with over 300-year history. Tell me, what's it like working 
for a family that's kind of in their 10th and 11th generation? The company is, look, I think working in any family business, uh, you always have to work with a sense of passion and a sense of dedication because, especially in this case, there's, you know, as Maximilian always says, there's, a, you know, there's, there's 11 generations, 266 years behind him. Uh, you know, you don't want to be the last one. And that message and that passion is literally pushed right through the business and through the company, in which case, you know, we're very, it's, it's a fun brand and it's a fun product, but we're very serious about what we do and, and we want to always execute it at the best possible in the best possible way. Um, you know, look, I guess the other thing with working for a company or a family business like this is uh, it's a very flat structure. Uh, so we, we, we talk directly with owners. Um, you know, if you want decisions, you talk with an owner. It's, it, things get done on, on, at, at a very f- rapid and fast pace. Uh, and we're all, and, and everybody, um, everybody at the sort of the director level, uh, including and, and the family, we're all across all the topics that are relevant to us on a day-to-day basis. So things move very quickly and very fluid. Um, and regardless of where we're all based around the world, uh, you know, we're all we're all communicating on a very regular basis. So, you know, and I think rather than having a corporate structure, which it's just not us. That's not what we do. Um, you know, we're quite a, we're not a small business. We're not a we're not a giant, but at the same time. Uh, everything is done, you know, one to one. A lot of lot of involvement from owners. Yeah! Wow! Amazing. I want to. Um, I spoke to a, a young sommelier not long ago and was talking about the skills that they have and and the breadth of where they can utilize wine skills. And I talked a little bit about you know the different avenues you can go down. Tell me a little bit about you know, what kind of wine and spirit knowledge do you need to have to kind of work in your field? And are you heavily involved in in wine and spirits? Absolutely. Look, initially, when when I look for people to join our business, I don't necessarily look for someone who is a wine professional or wine or spirit professional. Um, I tend to look for people who have knowledge of wine uh, and, you know, sort of a basic working knowledge to some degree, whether they've worked in the industry, whether it's selling or whether they've worked in a winery. For me, it's more about the passion because uh, all the other stuff, you know, I can't teach passion um, or and desire, but, you know, we can teach you about wine. Um, you've got to have, as time goes on, you've got to build a fairly good working knowledge of all wine. Um, you know, we don't align ourselves with anyone sort of winery or brand, um, you know, the product can be utilised across the entire industry. Um, but you've got to have, you know, from a communication standpoint, when, you, when you're talking, when, you, when you're standing in front of a consumer, you need to have a good basis of knowledge of, of um, working knowledge of wine. And look, mine has been developed over the course of, I guess, 25 years, 26 years. Um, but, you know, it, and it's, I do, I guess I, you know, going to a lot of tastings, Going to a lot different, a lot of different events, talking to winemakers on a regular basis over a very long period of time, and you learn a lot. Um, I think initially, no, I, my, my wine knowledge was non-existent, and I, I think you know when I was also talking to a lot of people, doing tastings, doing regal tastings, not only was was my knowledge not nowhere near what theirs probably was on wine. Uh, I was the youngest person in the room by at least twenty five years. Uh, you know, I think consumers, the consumer age brackets changed over the years, as has knowledge. Uh, your knowledge has increased. Consumers have, have gotten younger. Um, I've gotten older, of course, but consumers have definitely gotten younger. 
Um, but the general sort of knowledge of wine in this country is, has increased significantly. I mean, you would have seen this as too over your time um, when you think of the, gen- the average sort of experience of consumers. So you've got to have a, a very solid you know, knowledge of wine. But that can, you know, we generally develop that over time in, in, in this business. Mm. Like I, t- I suppose a lot of things, it's about attitude and passion first and everything else can be taught along the way. But the reason I ask that is because I know that your knowledge of wine is right up there. And I think in terms of the fact that you're working with varietal specific stemware, you need to have a really good grasp of what some of the classic varieties look and taste like, who are the um, producers that that make those, um, re- you know, really um, – uh, what's the right word, that you can rely on, those reliable classic varieties that they produce year after year. So in terms of of your knowledge of what's out there, I think that you have to stay really up to date and your, your finger's right on the trigger. Absolutely. Look, you know, and wine, as, as I sort of say to anyone who joins us as well, you know, wine is one of the – you can't shortcut the process. Wine is one of those products. There's a lot of it out there. Uh, and the only way you can really learn about it properly is stick your nose in that glass and put it in your mouth and try it. Um, you know, you don't need to drink at all. So you can, by all means, spit. Uh, there's too much wine in the world to drink at all. But you know, the reality is, you've got to try it. You've got to have. You've got to, and you've got to be doing this consistently. There's just you know, wine is. I always love when when we talk, when we do interviews or or I, you know even talk on podcasts and things. And someone says, "Oh, can you explain a glass to me?" And it's like, well, I can, but it's really difficult over over a, in, in this medium. It's the same with a wine. If I said to you, you know, if you said to me, I'll explain this wine to someone, what does it mean to them? You know, the reality is you've got to try it. You've got to, you've got to get up close and personal with it. You've got to pull the corks, screw off the top, stick your nose in that glass, and you've got to be trying, doing this on a regular basis to keep your knowledge up there. Uh, and I guess, you know, that's one of the things that we do in our business as well is we make sure we are regularly trying, you know, different, different wines, different regions, uh, we're always doing tastings and, and, you know, we try to vary it as much as possible because then it becomes our knowledge base as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's the critical part. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree with that. Change of pace. You Question for you. You go to your local BYO pizza place and they have those, which you've just told me, X. XLR? XL5. XL5. I was thinking um, the RSL glass. That's all I could think of. But now I know a name. I'm so glad about that. That's that's what they've got to serve and you've taken a nice bottle of wine. Do you take your own glasses? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, my wife and I are – I'm sure we annoy some people, but we're we're famous for walking around with our own own glassware if we know that it's not available. Uh, if we're going if we're going away for a weekend, we always pack a little case and we make sure that we have our own glasses ready to go. Um, whether it's a generic glass in an, in an overture series or whether we have something more specific, just depends where we're going and what we're doing. But absolutely, we regularly take glasses out to places when when you know the local the local joint where. The, in the end, some of these places I end up actually leaving a box from time to time because it's, because it's just easier uh, and, you can you know, you're, they're always there for you. Makes, <gasps> makes sense. I love that you said that, Mark, because <laughs> the one thing that I really kind of hang my head in shame a little bit is that I do the same thing and my husband – has at times gone home, we've gone to the local pizza place and he, on his way I've said, can you bring the glassware? And he's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed, but okay. But the diff, the, the problem is 
you may just, might as well not drink something delicious if it's going to be out of those crappy glasses. You, I'll just drink beer if that's the case. So I've done the same thing and I kind of feel like a little bit of a wine wanker, but I just can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, look, over the years we've, been, we've had lots of side eyes getting, getting looked our way. But, you know, you're right and this is the thing and this is, you know, you sort of comes back to what I said at the, you know, earlier on is, and this is what enchants you about the product is, listen, you know, we all make an investment in wine and if you think about what you spend on it these days per bottle, it's not cheap. Um, and, you know, depending on where, what you're drinking and where you're getting it from, it, it can add up, in which case why would you not maximise it? Whether you're having a, a pizza or you're going to the local Thai place, whatever it may be, you know. Just throw a couple of glasses in. It makes perfect sense. It's so true. And I, my local little Thai place, they keep my glasses so that I don't have to look silly walking in. Yeah, even better. You know, and you know, the best for a venue is when you actually when you bring in your own glasses and you take them away. <laughs> That's the best opportunity for them. They don't have to break theirs and, uh, and you don't drink their detergent. So everybody wins. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's so good. You made me feel at home. So thank you for that. <laughs> Tell me, um, t- can you explain a little bit, just in a maybe a bit more of a general sense, the difference between kind of crystal and glass? Because it's a question that I would get asked a lot in the restaurant, like, is this glass crystal? Is it glass? What's So, could you give them a little bit of a, a roundabout idea? Yeah. So, look, I think this is one of these, um, this is definitely a topic which can be very confusing. Old school and historically, crystal was classified in, in three different variants. You had full lead crystal, which was um, 30% lead oxide and above. Very few products were produced in this type of execution. Um, and, and literally, it's just the addition of lead oxide into the raw, raw composition, uh, which creates this very soft and malleable product. The only reason you would ever do that is when you're when you want to use that type of product in a very decorative glass. Um, so you're going to cut it, for example. So if you think back, you, you know how glass window panes in old school windows, they would slump over the years. And the reason they would slump is because they have lead oxide in them. And so the addition of lead means that they're very soft and malleable and pliable. It also makes them very heavy. Uh, and so depends on the style of production. We always used to, historically, up until 2013, 2014, we used lead crystal in, in most of our lines. Uh, lead crystal was 24% weight by volume, uh, and that gave us a brilliant, clear product. It had, uh, it had beautiful weight to it and, and presence in the hand um, and beautiful elegance. But look, having lead oxide in the factory and, and just on on that topic, we, was it the issue for us moving forward was that we always had to have a doctor on site uh, when you have lead oxide as a raw material, and we always did batch mixing in house. So for that purpose, we always had to have a doctor doctor twenty four seven on site. They didn't do anything, but they had to be there. Just that was one of the legal requirements. So we made a a decision to to eliminate it out of the, the product. We use a product called Crystalline. It's it's a composition where we remove lead oxide, but we're adding in other components. Um, other materials so that you get this beautiful whiteness and this clear clear quality in the glass. So I think crystal in a modern context is you can move to soda lime glass, which is typically used for the type of glass that you would find in your cupboards right now for jars. Um, 
it's quite it can be quite brittle, but the reality is you, you'd always find it thicker, which makes it stronger and more durable. Um, it's also a cheaper form of production. Uh, that's why it's used in that that capacity. For us, crystal glass is and it's crystalline. It's a it's a some people would say it's a marketing reference and term. There's no doubt about that, but the reality is we don't produce soda lime. So if you don't produce soda lime and you step up, it's crystalline is, is our is our product. Where we actually batch mix in house still, uh, and we do we're we're fully responsible for our own quality. This is something that is unique to us. We pride ourselves in our quality. All of our glasses have this beautiful whiteness to them, and ninety. Five percent of other products in the marketplace that sit out there, they've all got these different colour refractions to them, and the reason is is because they're using cheaper products. Now we could do the same thing, but it means that you're going to get all these different colour variants in your glass. And because of what we do, being the wine glass company, we don't want this. So it's something we're very proud of uh, the composition that we've managed to uh, to work with. But look. There's, I think there's only one factory that I'm aware of that is still producing lead oxide in glass, um, and it's only because they're, hand, they're, they're doing a lot of cutting of product. Um, outside of that, there's no need for it uh, in a modern context. Um, so I, it's still a, I, know, I know it's still a very probably a very vague description, but it's as, as concise as I can get. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I think you've done a great job because it, it is so detailed, and I'm fascinated by glassware because I think it really reflects um, the world and what's happening in it. And if you look at how far glassware has come over the years, it, it's absolutely fascinating. So I could get really nerdy and I could pick brains for much longer than this. But, no, I did want – you've really answered the question. So thank you for doing that. Hey, no, you're welcome. I mean, it's, it is – as I say, I know we understand – it's one of these very vague things uh, that a lot of people, some people have a little bit of an understanding of, but there was not a lot of information. There was not a lot of information that graded what was put out in the marketplace in the past. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, these days, you know, everything's been answered in everything that people want of a glassware. You know, it used to be, you know, we've got beautiful fine crystal, but you can't get it out very often because someone's going to break it and it costs a lot of money and it's, you know, it's too delicate. Now we have lightweight, durable glassware that you can use for any occasion that, so it's, everything's kind of been answered. I mean, a lot of the Rito range, you or the few of them, you can, you can put them in the dishwasher. Absolutely. All of it can go in a dishwasher. I always say to any to all of my tastings that our glasses are dishwasher safe. They're not human safe. We love to test the pressure points. Uh, we do all sorts of crazy things like twisting them at either end. And, but the reality is you put in a machine and it's stable, it won't break. The, the machine cannot break your glass. We break our glass through, through negligence. No one wants to hit this. Nobody wants to hit this, but it's just the reality. It's just the way it is. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, you know. it's often that the... the- shoving it into the dishwasher <laughs> that's the problem or pulling yeah, it out or too roughly it it's out. once it's yeah. in there it's okay <laughs> yeah very true i want to ask you um you've worked with some amazing collaborators um over the time coke uh, numerous central otago pinot noir walk me through the process of say working with a collaborator um say something like four pillars gin okay uh that's well that's one we're doing at the moment uh we've got a Look, we try to work with as best as possible with a lot of our partners, people who work and support with us as well, and support us, um, support our business. Um, Four Pillars, this is a pure marketing drive and, and concept, and, and we just put together a little pack that was going out into the for, for gin. But if I was to give you, 
I mean, you mentioned Central Otago. That was quite a long process, um, and I'd elaborate on that one for you. Rudy approached me, gosh, it must have been back in 2013, and said, uh, I'm interested, you know, are you guys interested to make a glass for Central Otago? I said it was not long off the, sort of shortly off the back of a glass that George Riedel had done for Oregon Pinot Noir. And, uh, and I said, well, yeah, it's possible. Like, let's, let's, let, why don't I come and meet with you and we can have a chat about it. And so we did exa- exactly that. We, we, we had a meeting and, and I said, yeah, sure, look, let's, you know, uh, why don't I invite George to come and uh, we'll, we'll travel to Central Otago and we'll construct a, a workshop for you and, uh, and we'll, we'll, let's see if we can find the best glass for Central Otago. And, look, we did one workshop in, must have been 2014, uh, 2013, four, late 13, early 14, uh, in Central Otago with George Riedel and all of the winemakers, and we asked them all to bring their wines. We took around about 18 different glasses, and it was interesting because there was two. There was a group of marketers in the room, and there was the group of winemakers in the room. And the marketers chose one glass, and the winemakers chose another one. And I, I, easiest way to sort of explain that when we when you, in the workshop process is it's a process of elimination, and when you get down to the end. The idea is to look for the glass which presents the wine at its most perfect. The wine which the glass which really highlights the attributes of the style of the wine. And so the answer in that to, of course, the marketers was, well, this is the way the consumers would want to see it. But the answer to the winemakers, yeah, but this is the way we want to see it. And it's like, right. So then you've got these two, two, two having a battle. So what we had to do was actually merge the two glasses. We had to mutate the two. Uh, and that's how we developed that glass. Now that took, and then we did prototypes we did i think from recollection we did around about 250 we polled around 250 people in the end to get that glass and to get it right um it was it took us about two years from memory uh and and probably about a quarter of a million euro uh in development costs completely absurd for the for the size of the region but you know that's how passionate we are about this and it became george Riedel loves pinot noir and so it became a labor of love for him uh, to make sure that we got it right, and uh, in the end, we we developed this glass, uh, which we believe through tastings was categorically the best glass for Pinot Noir. It's a very complicated process. It's very time consuming, uh, and uh, but you know, it's it's the DNA of what we do. This is this is the unique part. So yeah. And that's what I mean about Riedel in, in terms of the way that they do everything with such finite detail. And I think that that's exactly right. Central Otago and especially, you know, when that was in creation, you know, was taking the world by storm with their style of Pinot Noir and what they were achieving, you know, um, you know, with Rudy Bauer at Quartz Reef and and a lot of the guys in Central Otago, and 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 it deserved its own glass. And I just think it was it was so exciting because it generated that um, that excitement around the region, but also about you know why it was special as opposed to other places in the world. And I think it was I think it's really cool. And you get to do so many fun things like that, whether it like you said it be a gin or Coca Cola or t- uh, the first time I came across the glassware was tequila and I wasn't a huge tequila fan and then I got to have tequila in a glass that actually showed this array of beautiful aromatics rather than just this hot spiritus 
alcohol, which is what I kind of knew. So, yeah, just remarkable. I mean, look, the Coca-Cola one was a was a, a left of centre, and that was a George Riedel special because George Riedel is a, he, he he had a fascination with Coca-Cola as a kid. And uh, he had the opportunity to, to develop the glass for them. Personally, I was never a Coca. I mean, I, as a kid, I, I drank liters of the stuff. I'm sure. Uh, but as, as an as an adult, I just don't I don't drink Coke. It's not one of the one of not one of my beverages. And but for the first time ever, you know, you smell Coke in a glass and you go, "Wow, that's what it smells like." Fascinating. I never knew, never knew all those years. All those years, I just drank it straight from the bottle, straight into the belly. Uh, but it actually has a quite an interesting aroma to it when you when you analyse it. Um, not that I, not still not that I drink Coca Cola now, but anyway. <laughs> but no, I know what you mean, and and there are there's lots of layers to that recipe that you're that coveted recipe that we're never ever going to find out. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Tell me. Mark, if you kind of sit back after a long day, I know you work incredibly hard. What makes you proud of the work that you do? What makes me proud is what we've achieved here uh, in the market. When I consider how we're positioned, how we go to market, uh, our presence, our market coverage, uh, what we've managed to achieve with our brands. And we've got three brands under our umbrella. It's not just Riedel. We've also got Spiegelau and Nachman. And Nachman has been a huge success story for us here in Australia. Um, and, I, you know, through the COVID period, we were very, very lucky and very blessed that, you know, consumers being home, people stocked up on glassware. You know, the trend for consumption was 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 all about enjoying what you would normally enjoy in a restaurant at home. Uh, so we were very lucky over that period, and business was very good for us. Um, you know, I guess you know we're one of the we were one of the lucky ones through that period in that sense. Um, and it, when we looked at consumption per capita, Riedel was number one in the world, uh, and that's something that I'm very proud of when I consider the size of our market uh, and. Look, obviously, we're never going to be a giant like the US or or Germany. But when we consider how much we do sell here per capita, we were number one. Uh, and, you know, that that's something I'm very proud of. We've got a team of people here that have been with me for a very long time, uh, core nucleus of team, uh, that have worked very hard to achieve that. And... You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm not all. I'm not one for standing back and patting myself on the back or or, or the team uh, very often. But that is something that I'm. I have to say was was an achievement that I had never thought about. But when when we we got there, it's like right. Well, that's you know, it's quite an quite an impressive result. How how do we better it? That's the problem. It's 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 easy. It's you know, when you're when you're when you're that high, it's only there's only down sometimes. So you've got to make sure you keep striving and, and keep keep pushing. Uh, and and keep making sure that we do things, we execute everything to the best in the best possible way we can, um, and that, I guess that's that's what keeps me going. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have been with the brand for how many years now? Twenty seven. <laughs> wow. I just you know. So that really says it all, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, just 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 tells you how old I am. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it, it really says a lot about working for a great company and working with a great team. And I think that, that that's, yeah, just testament to that. It's wonderful to hear. I've only got a couple more questions. I've actually got a lot more, but I'll, I'll wrap it up. Tell me, first of all, <laughs> how much glassware do you have in your home and do you need a whole room to store it all? Uh, no. Look, um, right now, actually, I don't have a lot of glassware because we're about to start a renovation. But the reality is... 
Look, we have a couple of lines that, and in the new place, we're building a, a purpose-built uh, glass cabinet. Um, look, we need enough just for the, the, the main varietals, the key varietals that which we enjoy or which we would share with friends uh, and family whenever they come over. Um, so realistically, we're talking probably about four different varietals uh, and and then you know water glasses and things on top. Um, look, it does con- it does take up a considerable amount of space because you need six to eight glasses of each variant. Um, but normally one cabin, you know, one cabinet up and up until just now, when as I say we we're about to renovate, we had this this lovely IKEA cabinet for glassware, and it was perfect. It just just to double doored. Uh, IKEA cabinet did te- did all of our needs for glassware. Wonderful temporary measure until we get the permanent space, but uh, that was that was that was a e- very easy uh, easy way of holding it all. Mm, I'm excited to see this renovation and see what you come up with because I've got, I've been put a ban on glassware in my household, and uh, so I keep it in boxes and squirrel it away where he doesn't know where they live. So uh, I, I he doesn't quite know just how much I have and. Uh, I like it that way, but um, I can't help myself. I do get told off for having too much, but that's you know, <laughs> and I do get regularly sent back to the office with different lines. So yes, <laughs> oh, touche. I love it. Now let me see. If you only had three beverages that you could drink for the rest of your life, Mark, what would they be and why? <laughs> you know what? This is a very easy answer for me because there's only three beverages I generally drink in my life. I start the morning with water, I then go to coffee, and I finish with wine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't drink I don't drink juices I don't drink so, uh, um, anything other than than those three products they're my they're my staples coffee gets me going in the morning and, and wine brightens up the day at the end of it so pretty and, and I drink a lot of water so there you go very simple very easy for me it's, that's very important and three things you you really do need we can't get anywhere with coffee and I was just thinking I know he's going to say wine but I was thinking will he say champagne will he say chardonnay will he say pinot or maybe barolo ah uh, well no barolo my wife does not like barolo so that's not doesn't feature in our house very often because if I open the bottle I have to drink it on my own which is not a great idea uh, so no, but Pinot Noir is definitely a, a staple in our house. As is Champagne and Chardonnay. They're our three, they're our three main grapes that we we gravitate towards. But wine, generally speaking, I would say is my is my is my thing, and coffee, as you say, I can't can't deal without coffee. No, I feel you for that. <laughs> well, very good choices, and I uh, I align with a lot of those. It's been so nice to spend some time with you today, Mark. It's always a pleasure, and thank you so much for for having a chat with me. And I hope that we get in the same room sometime soon, and we can have a drink. I hope so too. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Thanks for having me, Shanta. Greatly appreciate it. Cheers to you, Mark. Thanks, Shanta. This is over a glass. I'm Shanta Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.